Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. I know it's been a while, and I appreciate you all being patient with us. It's always tricky when we get to transitioning from the normal school year to summertime employment. But we're back, and it gave us time to brave into interesting waters for you all. The topic we chose for today is psychology and religion and spirituality. We cover a very wide range within that topic. We get pretty deep, talk about consciousness and the measurable health benefits of having some sort of stable organizational structure with which to orient yourself to reality and then effectively act within that reality. Towards the end, we also get towards questions of what is truth and whether a cult is still a cult if they're right. Like I said, it gets interesting. Um, Definitely a topic we're going to revisit. We hope you all enjoy and tag along, and we'll see you on the next one. It's an interesting segue into our topic. All right. Um, And I don't know what to call it. We can stick with psychology of religion, spirituality, whatever. But I think that is a good touch point, what you just brought up about not having AC and you kind of just get acclimated, not just physically, but mentally as well. Like the Stoics would have something to say about empowering yourself by releasing the thought of control. It's outside of your control. There's nothing you can do about it except to choose how you're going to respond. Yeah. I think that like having the option to do it is part of feeling the need to control it. And I don't have an option and I have somehow mentally mm-hmm. let go. And it's, you know, not something I would have done. This is something I could have done my entire life. <laughs> Never used AC. Um, I would have been dead by now, probably uh, living in Alabama growing up, but here in Oregon, I could do this, whether or not I have AC. Um, but now I am doing it because I have no choice. Well, then what would you... Did you look at anything in preparation for this? Um, or any, I anything substantial? I did a couple scan-throughs. Um, <clears throat> it was actually really hard on my end to find literature at least pointed enough for my interest. Like you type in psychology of religion and you get some really out there search engine suggestions, you know? Yeah. I didn't find anything particularly good or interesting. Um, So I kind of switched gears and was like, all right, let's just get some like basic statistics and like basic, like this is what these people are doing. This is what these people are doing. And then the, I mean, I'm sure there is, good literature but uh it's probably all in book form which is not well and it's uh, probably really really niche for what we're trying to do with it too because i found a lot of stuff that was it was self-reported 
it was like psychotherapy or hypnosis or the idea of like how a revelatory experience or a transcendent experience has effects on, again, self-reported depression or addiction or things like that. It was really, 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 really difficult for me to try and find anything that was like, hey, here's an fMRI scan of your brain when you're praying versus a control, right? Mm-hmm. Anything grounded in psychometrics or measurable, quantifiable changes in neurochemical density or, or you know, anything like that. I bet there's sort of an issue where if you don't find anything in your study, uh, it's boring and not a lot of people publish it and it doesn't get spread. So I bet what's happened is people did a bunch of research, um, found no difference, and then really the only research people care about is when, oh, there is a difference. Oh, something did happen. Um, but I imagine with uh, like religiousness and spirituality, um, it's not going to really change the way that you are uh, living broadly, very broadly. It's not going to change what you're doing. And uh, therefore, all the research is going to say like, well, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so that would be my guess as to why there's not a lot of interesting research because you know, people don't publish stuff that nothing happened which is the problem. You should. If your study didn't work, it should still be published so that other people can know that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's A, there's there's a point to be made about, right, if all we ever produce are books confirming X, Y, and Z, then it doesn't offer any information on any instance of anything outside of X, Y, and Z. Whereas if you have a more composite picture right? Even of stuff attesting, well, this doesn't happen in this circumstance. Um, <clears throat> then we can, we can extrapolate a more, more complete picture of reality from that. Um, but it makes me wonder too, if not, I don't know. I want to say it's a little bold to say that nothing happened. Whereas I think it might be more realistic to say that anything that did happen was so convoluted that you couldn't make a point about it. Right. 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 Because I mean, like, look, there, there is a measurable effect of someone going into hypnosis. That doesn't necessarily mean someone has the magic power of the pocket watch dangling in front of you type thing, right? It, ju- it just says that there was a correlation. Um, and it, it's difficult for people that care about that to use correlation and build together causation, right? Just because something has happened in the brain doesn't mean that it was a supernatural experience. Yeah. I think the other issue that that would be a huge issue with research is what you mentioned with self-reporting and saying, I'm a religious and spiritual person and someone who says, I am not a religious or spiritual person. And then uh, having to believe them (laughs) uh, just based on that self-report. And there's not a test that says, okay, you are spiritual, you are not. Or um, I imagine if there was a test, it would end up on some sort of spectrum. 
Yeah. And even I, then. I wonder if, I wonder if there's been any longitudinal study done about happiness markers, overall general health, even higher prevalence or lower prevalence of stress-induced chronic disorders, both physiological and mental, between subjects that were raised in and continued a lifestyle of adherence to some kind of doctrine. Right? I don't want to make it so specific as like, you know, if you follow Catholicism, there's medical benefits or whatever, but just some kind of regimen or doctrine. Um, and then those that don't, that would there be interesting. Is, um, it's developmental psychology is kind of the area that studies those things. And they have found that people who are religious throughout their life uh, do better. They rate less with loneliness. And if you have high loneliness, you're at a risk of um, dying early, mostly mm -hmm. because of lack of resources and someone to tell you, hey, go to the doctor. So, um, and so what they attribute that to is the community and seeing, you know, 10 or 12 people every week. Um, that's kind of the idea is if you're religious, you're part of a group and being part of that group gives you an identity, something to do, people to see and something to talk about when you see them. So you do find benefits, um, but they're not, if you just took someone who was very religious and never left their house, they would not do as well as someone who is not religious and does leave the house and sees people and does things. So um, religion is a great like community and community is safe. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um we are a social animal. There's no getting around that fact. And <clears throat> those of us that are nested in healthy social structures have tangible physical benefits out of that. Um, I wonder though, if that wouldn't also extend to hermits as well though. Right. So like, obviously there would be some roughly proportional drop in measurable benefit without the social community involved, but having, I wonder if having some organizational structure with which to understand the world and make meaning of that experience is better than none. Yeah, there's... Because life um, is painful for everybody. And if you have something that helps you reason through, even if it's a useful fiction, which I don't think it is, but I'm not going to be definitive and say that that's not an option. So even if it is a useful fiction, there is a tangible effect out of it. Um, like it, it I don't know. It, we, we just, we seem too responsive to it. 
fundamentally, foundationally? There is, let's see, this is an area of research in my practice that I've just sort of started out in and I've started adding it into programs that I do with clients and it is uh, sort of laying a foundation with coming up with a list of values mm -hmm. and there, the research behind that is um, like relational frame theory and uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is based on relational frame therapy. And the idea is that your like cognitive thoughts are based off of something or in response to something. And the way to kind of control and just have more control over your thoughts and your thought patterns and therefore your motivation and your behavior is by returning to those values again and again. And this is the most sort of cognitive, like woo-woo stuff that I do in my practice. And it was ignored by like behavior analysts for a long time because it's weird. <laughs> you can't write it down and, you know, define like kindness, joy, friendship, uh, motivation, resilience, those words that we're using. No, it, they, it's they really change things. Well, it's it's really difficult to pin down metaphysical issues. Physical issues are one thing, right? I'm not good enough at math to be able to chart um, the gravitational pull from the sun on the earth that keeps us in orbit. But once you know the formula and how to do it, like it's quote unquote easy, right? You just have to do the kind of work. It's a different, whole different level of difficult to explain and define happiness why it occurs why we experience it how that wraps into our understanding of the universe and reality and our relationship to that like there's there is no formula to that other than dialogue and communication right which is why <clears throat> i'm not a big fan of I'm not a big fan of the German philosopher's dialectical model, primarily because a lot of historically what has happened because of it, but I do understand like the Socratic dialogue, right? The dialogic dialectical model, which is what you were touching on earlier about um, our cognition is in response to or initiating something right there there's some there's always some kind of push and pull everything's right. within a context right that's that's exactly how learning happens right when um I'm, i always get them mixed up between um piaget's ideas of accommodation and assimilation mm -hmm. right with with cognitive development right so one would be um my two-year-old son, I show him a dog for the first time and he goes, yay, puppy. And we pet the puppy and he forms a loose idea of like, this is an animal, four legs, long tail, fuzzy, likes to get petted. And then the next day I bring a cat in and I show him and it's really easy for him to assimilate that new cognitive information into a schema that he's developed for what an animal is because it fits the same mold. Four legs, long tail, fuzzy, likes to be scratched, all that stuff. And then, But then the next day I bring in a praying mantis. 
and you say, hey, this is an animal too. That doesn't fit his framework for what an animal is. So now he has to create a whole new schema that accommodates that new information, mm -hmm. right? In every single thing that we do, like that is learning. We are taking this new information and we're bouncing it off of the schemas that we have. And if it fits, it sits. If it doesn't, we rework our understanding of the world. And that's kind of like relational frame theory is adding in your cognitions about like those three subjects, cat, dog, praying mantis. So uh, you're first introduced to dog. You like it. It's cool. You're introduced to cat, which is similar. So you like that also. You're introduced to praying mantis, which is very not similar. So you don't like those. And you know, that very basic example, but you, if you're introduced to something, it's relating to everything else that you've already been introduced to in good ways, bad ways, different ways. And that's how we build these really complex ideas and relationships and opinions with all of these things in our environment, which impacts our behavior. And this is something I'm not fully, I've read a bunch of articles and every time I put down the article, like while I'm reading it, I'm like, oh yeah, I get it. Okay, I put the article down, immediately have no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> and so it's just something I haven't fully grasped yet. So I'm gonna get some stuff wrong probably, uh, but. Well, that's, that's yeah, why we're it, here. We play around in those exploratory areas. Um, I had something to say. I had a light bulb aha moment. Oh. Probably misremembering at least parts of this, but I I'm, hope I'm pointed and accurate enough to do it justice. But I think I read something somewhere that that's fundamentally why most people have an aversion to creepy crawlies. And it's kind of like a twofold layered blend. First of all, is the evolutionary, right? Um, you live in the jungle, those type of things are more often than not really dangerous to you in really small microscopic ways that you can't understand as an aboriginal culture at least other than through your myths and legends that explain it um the second thing too is the more disconnected of a conscious experience from us something else is the less it's able to be anthropomorphized which means fundamentally literally, metaphorically, metaphysically, you know, in all of the other Ickley ways, like there's no relation there, right? The farther something is removed from our embodied conscious experience, the less we are actually able to understand and relate to that. Mm. So, right, right. So, so how do you, what do, what do we say when we see a dog that's happy? Oh, he's smiling. Right, that's a very human behavior that we're cognitively imposing on that dog. Now, it might make some kind of, you know, panting because it's been running, chasing the ball, playing fetch, and you can see its teeth, and we just associate that with a smile. But the reason we can do that is because genetically and through lived experience, they are at least close enough for there to be some sort of Venn diagram overlap between how we relate to and understand the world. 
right? They're mammalian, they have fur and hair, they drink and eat and operate in very much similar ways as we do. And then you put like spider in the mix. Eight legs, exoskeleton, fuzzy on the inside, jumping spiders focus not because their eyes move, but because their brain moves inside of their head to help them focus on lenses and focal points, right? We can't relate to that lived experience That's at true. all. Oh my God. Okay. I had no idea about that. Gross. Right. We, we, can't, we can't relate to that experience at all. And therefore it just kind of gets cognitively rejected. I did ask myself the other day if uh, Baxter is a lab, mostly a lab, he's a mix, but he has that like innate wiggle happiness and he comes up to you and does it. And I asked, like, do you think he knows that he is showing us that he's excited and showing us that he's happy? Or is he just doing it and he has no idea that we are aware of his emotion when he does that? Um, and I said, I think he knows that he is showing us something when he wiggles and does that. Yeah, because that, um, that that's he's an, communicating something to us. That's an interesting question, right? Would that be a triggered yeah. response or would that be a conscious operation? Yeah, like he's feeling all of these endorphins. Is he aware that we know that he's feeling all those endorphins by his wiggles or um, does he just assume that um, no one knows? Does he assume that everybody knows? The conclusion was he knows that we know and that's why he does it to show us. Which makes sense because like humans, dogs are social animals. They're social mm -hmm. mammals. Right, they have social structures and social hierarchies that don't necessarily overlap with the human experience, but are alike enough to where we can, you, you can look at a dog and you can read a dog. Is he happy? Is he sad? Is he mad? Is he sleepy? I can do the same thing with a cat. We can kind of do it with birds, but they're, they're a little trickier because they're, they're avians. They're not necessarily mammals, right? different enough lived experience, but still flock animals respond to auditory triggers, start, they communicate in, in simple ways. Right. They can, a lot of different breeds of parrots have, when they're happy, we, they, they call them fluff and chops because the feathers underneath their beak stick out, right? Like a, a man's beard chops, um, right? So, so they, they have those displays where you can kind of read them but they're also alien enough to where I still get bit all the time. <laughs> you know, because like there, there's some sort of warning system or, or like if I was a bird, I'd be able to understand the micro expressions better and therefore either, you know, to read the situation better, but I can't because I'm human. I is not verb. Yeah, I think um, the... Uh, you, when those dogs did something wrong and then they start acting scared or sad or mm -hmm. they start displaying an emotion, I think that's another evidence that they are communicating how they're feeling purposefully to us um, as, uh, I mean, they're not quite smart enough to manipulate, but some dogs probably are. Uh, Baxter's not smart enough to manipulate, but... I mean, well, see, and, this, and here's here's the it. thing, though. I don't know if you were young enough to remember, but 
when we lived in the Mockingbird house, for, for our viewers, this is the house we grew up in in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, our golden lab, Sammy, she went through a stint there where we would put her in the mudroom. That was her like bedroom. But it was like the half garage and she didn't like it and concrete floor and whatever. Um, she started having seizures at about the same time that we started transitioning her to that. Now, the first couple I think were authentic, but it didn't take too long before me, mom and dad were like, she's doing that because she doesn't want to be alone in the mudroom. Right. It might've been a medical something that happened either through shock or stress or, um, you know, separation, anxiety, whatever. But once she learned that this action gets this response and I can avoid that, whatever it is I'm trying to avoid. Right. She did. She manipulated us for a good couple of weeks. Oh, that's so interesting. No, I didn't know that story. Um, yeah. Ask, ask mom about it. Sometimes she'll tell you. <laughs> that is so funny. It, it, um, it was. Sammy, see, Sammy I would have said, Sammy, I would have said she wasn't smart enough to do it. But now I got to relook <laughs> at Baxter and see what is he, is he manipulating? I mean, obviously they do like when he wants to go outside and he wants to come with us, he'll wiggle and get really excited. And, um, and it's tough to tell, does he think he's going or, or is he trying to get us to take or it? Or is he trying to say, I uh, want to go too? Yeah. Um, so there, tell there is some type of communication there, which is uh, cool. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. Um, I'd love to know enough about it to actually try and study it more, but I don't know enough about it. Um, I would have to do probably the equivalent of a master's program in order to know enough to start studying the boundaries between human animal language, where we can overlap in, in what that means. But um, tell me, tell me what you think about this. And then we'll try and tie it all back to what we think religion is, the religious experience, and what all of that means. So a couple weeks ago, I was starting to brainstorm for this episode. And I had a, I had an epiphany. And I don't know what it means. And I don't know if I'm onto something, but I'm going to lay it out. And hopefully it doesn't sound too crazy and it makes sense. So, um, our brains and minds as a package, if there is a separation between the two, right on time with the bird, um, our, our brains and minds are heuristics for consciousness. And by that, I mean, they, they are the mechanisms through which consciousness is distilled down into an understandable experience. Here's what I mean by that. Um, you look at testimonies from like Roland Griffith's psychometrics lab at Harvard and stuff like that. And people that have either a meditation induced or um, self-medicated induced hallucinogenic experience often explain that experience as being more in touch with everything. Now what that, what they're often describing is they, they talk about 
first of all, how the background and the foreground are intermixed, right? Which I think is in allusion to recognizing that it's all the same fundamental building blocks that make everything, right? Another thing that they often explain about too is that overwhelming sense of energizing pure white light the whole nine yards with that whole transcendent experience type thing. Here's what I think that is talking about. Imagine, imagine a completely untethered and unbounded existence or experience. It includes literally everything until it's defined, until it's pointed, until it's embedded or enacted or extended or embodied. It is literally infinity. It's unmeasurable, it's unqualifiable, it's unquantifiable until something happens and it gets narrowed down into a particular. We see this in quantum physics, right? The Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, you can't measure both the velocity and position of a subatomic particle because the formula gives you a range. If you have the momentum, you can find out what its position might be within a range of answers and then vice versa. Right? It isn't until enough layers of context are draped onto something that it becomes an understandable experience. Does that make any sense? Yeah. It does that make the assumption that our like consciousness is something separate from a like biological feature? I don't know if it would have to, but I'm inclined to say that it kind of does have to have that assumption. And then the biological part is the pinpoint that brings it all into focus and then infinity stops while it's here and then it could theoretically go back. Well, in, in this is all theoretically, so that goes without saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, I don't know if consciousness is an external, unembodied, metaphysical thing and we're just a focal point, like a prism or a lens that filters that through a specific experience. Or if it's that consciousness is just the definition of having an experience and it is through our homo sapien genetics that have given us this specific mechanical framework with which to ground experience enough for us to be aware of it mm -hmm. i think a lot of people have that idea and well there's really just two sides of that the the one is that our consciousness is a, a side effect of our biology and it's nothing special um or it's special but it's nothing beyond uh what could be explained by cells mm -hmm. and 
electricity going through in between them. And then there's the other group who say it is more than that. And all of this knowledge and learning and theorizing and wondering comes from something that is more than our biology. And I'm sure there's some areas in between as well. But I think the fact that a lot of people think it gives it merit. And I guess the problem is like every time people always take it too far and that undermines it as a whole. I'm thinking of like psychics or people who like claim they can see auras and then they try and study it and they realize this is all BS. And those people undermine that theory because they're, they believe it. But, but. And, and, and see, that's so interesting, too, because that's a concept that's been taken by popular culture and, like you said, made in extreme, but is at least logically coherent with what we know about biology. Right? Every cell in your body is emitting some sort of bioelectrical field. Right? That's how your nervous system is working, is by sending electrochemical signals from the nerve cells in your brain all the way down and then back and receiving those signals, right? And we do know that the laws of physics say that, that a moving electric charge generates a field around it. Now, what all of that means with like, you're at a party and Joe Schmo walks in and Susie Lou's like, oh, I can read his aura, he's a bad dude. Like, probably not connected. Yeah. You know, but but it but it doesn't it doesn't invalidate the underlying phenomenon that there probably is something measurable there, just probably right. the not right measurable of... with the human sense organs. Right, Joe Schmo does have a field around him um, of heat and uh, magnets. I guess negative, positive. There's people. I mean. We all well, are. I mean, that's that's, that's like... interesting, though. I wonder if I wonder if there's been any studies or measurements done on the ambient electromagnetic field around a person when they're in a mood of contentment or a mood of malice or something like that, right? Because we we do we do know that we can recognize micro expressions. And have you ever been mad and pretended not to be mad? You can't really get away with it. Right. So I wonder if there is some connection there that if it could be measured to make the claim that your mood alters your ambient electrochemical signal, or if it's the specific pathways of electrochemical signals that trigger anger, that trigger envy and jealousy, I know that they've done the opposite where they put people in different fields and see how they react. And um, they've also done that with like different colored rooms and different colored light, which would theoretically have different energy with it. And that's exactly. Yeah. So it does not work the opposite (laughs) where if you put someone in a pink room that that impacts them in some way. Um, But then see that that's interesting because why is feng shui a thing then? Uh, right there, there there are now it could just be an argument of aesthetics but there are certain organizational tools 
that have effects on people. It might not be necessarily measurable effects. It might be those self-reported effects. But still, like there is interaction with the person's metaphysical reality by the way that they're embedded is organized and structured. And with that, we've kind of found our way back to religion. Um, you know, if I have a crucifix in my home, does my home have a different situation than it was before I added the crucifix? And um, if I eat pork or something like haram versus halal, do, does something actually change? And and we'll have to try and answer those questions after a quick break. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's kind of, uh, there's kind of two parts of, do these things that we do in religion make an actual difference in our lives? And I'm thinking of like diet and values and community routine, praying, um, living your life a certain way, working hard, uh, taking breaks, fasting. Um, does it make an actual difference in your life or does it make a difference that only you notice and because you notice it, it makes a difference? You know, is the call coming from inside the house or <laughs> is it uh, something outside? Which... Uh, I think both, I, I think people are resistant to hearing, you know, it's all coming from within you. Um, but I don't think that makes it any less valid. It would be cool if there was like, like God sprinkles that came down when you prayed and it changed your life, but it's uh, probably not. <laughs> well, and, and I think here, in order to be careful and not accidentally tread into murkier waters um, for us to kind of start with a very rudimentary definition of religion, right? So mm -hmm. at least not yet when referencing religion, I'm not necessarily talking about the metaphysical existence of deities or a blind watchmaker or anything like that, right? No supernatural entities or anything. We could start off with just a definition of religion as the need for human beings to ritualize things, right? Even, even as from orbit level resolution, like organizational principles, right? An organizational system with, with which to, because if we can't understand the world, then we can't act in the world, right? So how do we understand the world? Well, we have a religious, it's a, a psychologically evolved religious function that we fulfill. 
right? Something helps us form a loose hierarchy or pyramid structure of reality and how we're nested in it in order for us to act in the world with any sort of consciousness at all. Interesting. I had kind of a more practical um, definition in mind, which I kind of loosely put as rules that are designed. Religion is a set of rules that are designed and intended to make groups of people function better, more efficiently, and easier by um, putting them all in the kind of same direction. Yeah, I think um, that might be a byproduct or the primary product of that psychological function that I'm thinking about. Because human beings have that instinctual drive to organize and be structured and build societies. We have a co-evolved need to orient in at least similar enough ways to have a hope for social cohesion. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, we can be we can be really cynical and say that that is all it is a method of achieving social cohesion but i think reducing it in that way glosses over much of the organic formation of these things to begin with, right? It's really easy to say that the church imposes something like the Catholic church imposes X, Y, and Z, or the Protestant church imposes X, Y, and Z. Um, and we forget that it was a, at least, especially for the Catholic church, a thousands year long process to distill down various different layers of experience into this handbook for understanding your place in reality. Mm -hmm. I also kind of went back to religions, like how a religion starts. And I'm, what that question also brought me to was what's the difference between a cult and a religion? And <laughs> the line's kind of blurry there. The answer is size only. <laughs> when a cult reaches a certain size, it becomes a religion. Um, the most famous of all of those, and the most recent example is um, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, was definitely on its way to being a cult um, that everyone would have forgotten about. And then, bing, bam, boom, Bob's your uncle. Huge. Well, then here's a question then. Is it still a cult if they're right? Now, I'm not talking about any specific example. I'm just saying in general, right? So I think to progress further, we have to kind of have the mutual agreement in this conversation that there are such things as human universals. we're not born blank slate. Every human being on, on the planet has born is born with 
roughly similar wiring to begin with, right? And it's through experience with pockets of localized culture and society that shapes that experience farther from that, right? Regardless of culture, murder is generally frowned upon. Theft is generally frowned upon, right? Those aren't just products of the Protestant Reformation and the Protestant work ethic that like, I've worked to get this, so you taking it from me is bad, right? Even even in tribesmen where it is kind of like a proto-communism, right? If you go to a different tribe and just start grabbing their stuff, like they're, they're gonna get upset, right? Mm-hmm. There are these human universals. Now, as such, if there are human universals, then at some point there are measurably better and worse ways of living, of enacting out your embodied consciousness. Now, say this cult picked up on the patterns of behavior that have been the most successful for the longest amount of time through recorded human history and tried to embody those. Right, if you, perfect example, if even 15,000 years ago, if you were an undisciplined farmer, you didn't grow crops as efficiently as the disciplined farmer. Right, if you didn't track the stars diligently enough, if you didn't plant at the right season diligently enough, if you didn't take care of the crops diligently enough, your yield would be less. Now, fast forward 15,000 years, and that's where we have this idea of your best chance at achieving happiness in the face of the inherent tragedy of life is through discipline. In, in, in some loosely written sense, I'm not ascribing to any specific or particular set of disciplines right now, just saying in general. Yeah, I think that's a great sort of broad, a religion would want you to follow its values and goals uh, as closely as it can, which I think discipline is a great way to put that. And man, I don't, that's a good question. If it's still a cult, if it's right. Right. So, so in, in going back to the, to the discipline thing, I'm not necessarily speaking as like discipline is in adhering to religious doctrine and dogma. But if you can get up at a decently early hour every single day, if you can hit the gym for 30 minutes every other day, if you can make it to work on time, if you can say you're going to be somewhere and force yourself to be there even when you don't want to, right? The patterns of outcomes for that on average are going to be higher than the person that doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. So regardless of religious or spiritual context, that is an example of a pattern of behavior that reaps measurable benefits, right? Now, we can take that so far as to saying that that's expected like a cult or a religion or a gang or anything like that. Any of those pseudo family organizations do require that discipline to the code, however it's defined. But the major religious backgrounds 
how did those codes originate? I suspect that those codes, those values, that system originated in trying to codify down the patterns of behavior that worked. Right. And we, we can, we can see some overlap here with like Christianity, for instance, why is Easter in the spring? Cause that's a time of renewal and rebirth. That's a time of planting your crops. Right. It's, it, it, it lines up where mm -hmm. if you go back a hundred thousand years ago and the first agricultural revolution farmer was like, Hey, holy shit, if I plant stuff at the same time of the year, I can get a predictable yield, all other things equal. Hey guys, mm -hmm. let's keep doing this. Let's teach this to our sons. And so they do that. And then over like 10 or 15 generations, that gets abstracted out because it's not the same society anymore, but the same fundamental patterns of behavior still needs to apply. So you abstract it out. So it's not so local and general and specific to not be relatable. And then that turns into your, your like local urban legends, right? Another 10 or 15 generations, those local urban, urban legends turn into regional mythos. They start becoming the big legends, the Hercules, right? Of the Greek era. What, what was he the symbol? He was the abstracted symbol of the ideal Man, if you are brave in the face of danger, if you tackle all of your quests that you're going to have in life, and life is going to give you a bunch of shitty quests because life is hard for everybody, then you can still be the hero of your own story, right? But over a thousand years, it had to abstract enough to be able to be applied to a whole ethnic group of people, not just that one region that figured that idea out, right? Fast forward to today, and that's what the story of Christ is. It's taking that idea of the abstract divine and embodying it and grounding it in a very specific historical context. So that way it's relatable. Christ can't be the everyman if he's not grounded and relatable enough. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Not, not necessarily Christ as in like the mythological religious figure, but what he represents facing your fears, knowing that you're going to get betrayed, but the right thing to do is still the right thing to do. Having all your friends turn on you as you get crucified, forced to bear your own cross with your mother watching you die and everybody else cheering because they released a known murderer, knowing that you were innocent. Like the Christ story is literally all of the worst things that could have happened to somebody in a month's time frame in that historical context but to face that with grace in, in the face of the inherent tragedy of life, you can still have a meaningful existence. And by grounding that down in a specific historical context, that makes it relatable to us 2000 years later. Right. And you can take and well, what people have done is use that as teaching point mm -hmm. and use these stories to get certain points across um to yeah teach lessons now, which is why it has perseverated so well now and we, i mean we see plenty of historical examples when the recognition of the underlying 
successful pattern of behavior is lost and people just blindly follow the dogma, right? That is the risk of too much adherence to tradition, right? So I, I, I frame houses with a guy. He was telling me um, a story. It, it, it lines up perfectly with this about an old church where, you know, that they, a new couple moved to town and went to the local Baptist church. And then halfway through the sermon, everybody on the right side got up and everybody on the left side got up. And without saying a word, they all just switched sides and sat down. Right. Well, after a couple sessions of that or a couple weeks go by and he starts asking around, why do we do that? And, and like half of the people didn't know, but all of the old timers remembered that when their parents attended that church, and there was no HVAC unit on it because it hadn't been invented yet. They could only afford a heater on one side. So halfway through the mass, they both sides would get up and swap. So that way it was somewhat equal, right? But just that it, it, they didn't know why anymore. It's just that adhere, that blind adherence to, to tradition, right? And That's awesome because it's so benign and weird <laughs> it's so cute as well they were trying to share the heat mm -hmm. uh, that's awesome no i um i mean that that's going back to our our distilling of consciousness or the heuristic for consciousness um this is something that the, the postmodernists were correct in their their diagnosis of that Nobody will ever not be embedded in a historical context, right? You're, you're never going to be able to remove your own influence in producing whatever it is that you produce, right? You can write a piece of fan fiction or you can write a piece of original fiction, right? You can be Tolkien for that matter and just create a whole legendarium and a whole mythical universe. But guess what? Even Tolkien's genius is nested in his unique historical contexts, right? There's allusions between World War I and World War II. It, 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 like, that is what the Dark War is. It is that World War II looming over the head of the horizon because of Tolkien's experiences in World War I, right? Now, what if we had what if we had a mechanism through which, no matter what your historical context, you could still understandably relate to the world enough to act efficiently in that world? And you're positing that religion is that mechanism Fulfills that, that function. Lets us, yeah. yeah. That works. Now, now, again, I don't, I don't want to be works. misunderstood in in claiming that like Christianity is the religion to fulfill that function. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that any particular religion is correct for that, but. I think that that is what religion does for us. 
Right. It, you, you, can, you can look at it as a set of dogmatic principles that people blindly adhere to and require cult-like affiliation to in order to continue propagating, which on one hand is a correct, albeit cynical, reading of the situation. But on the other hand, too, it's also a cultural inheritance. Yeah. Right. This, and, well, and this, that's why something it's so that, protected and... To a fault, even. Yeah, that's why religion um, is protected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this is something that that one of the few critiques I have for, like, Enlightenment liberalism, I think that, and the postmodernists were correct in pointing this out, although their method of pointing it out and their prescriptions for fixing of it were atrocious, in my opinion. But that Enlightenment liberalism focus on rugged individualism which isn't necessarily wrong right you are the master of your own existence but are you like, because we're nested in these social structures <laughs> right anybody take anybody anywhere and go put them by themselves they're not going to make it or, or they might, but their their yeah. expected life ex their life expectancy is going to be half of what ours is. Like that's how we started this whole thing out was that there are measurable extensions in like your functioning biology by being social in healthy ways, right? And I do think that it does help. Yeah, I I do think that we are kind of battling that unforeseen logical conclusion of focus on rugged individualism. Now, I still think that the level of the individual is the accurate level of analysis for understanding human interaction. Right? I'm not a collectivist. I'm an individualist. However, none of us are in this alone. We might die alone but we all die the same way and where none of us are born alone right at the very least like we have a mother right that's two people in the room at least <laughs> yeah i think at like on a global bigger um like when you look at group statistics uh religion benefits you and does not uh, cause any harm in any way to your life, your lifespan, your happiness, your loneliness scales, all of these things that they do to see how well a person is doing. Um, religion gives you a, a bump, a significant bump on all of them. Um, and then at a micro level, or I guess at an individual level, having clear values and clear roles and being able to distill all of that down into like six or seven buzzwords actually does help change behavior and motivate you to make positive changes in your life and you know stay away and that's why when you know people quit drinking and go to AA they talk about God in AA and like the 12 steps and all of that are for like, there's that, you know, Christian mm -hmm. element to it because it helps and it actually works to 
give you some sort of cognitive like grip, some sort of ladder to make that change. And that's why I've started adding that in my practice to change behavior because it does do something. And religion as a vessel for that is great. I think religion has been vetted at least more than any other system has. Right. And this is something going back to a, the, the fundamental religious function that we all have like built into our, our evolutionary psychology. Um, and our own contemporary political inheritance, right? So the United States political system grew out of the long English legal tradition, which goes back to like before the Magna Carta or 1200, so literally a thousand years ago. Now, all of that was grown out of that Judeo-Christian ethos. That's why we recognize politically, even metaphysically, that there is something outside and before the state that affords us our rights. You might even call it nature. Mm. doesn't particularly matter. The fact that you are born and you are alive gives you the right to life, and it's not the state issuing that. What has been, for most of human history, has been some deity, some spiritual, reason-withable, anthropomorphized, supernatural myth right well when rousseau came along at the tail end of the enlightenment and he kicked off a lot of the the french metaphysicians one of the things that he emphasized with the blank slate and the hyper rationalism of the scientific revolution veering away from religious doctrine because like during isaac newton they were still very much entrenched um But what we get is the state being that entity that grants us our rights. So it's, it's, it's fundamental purpose is completely different, right? If the state Mm. is the thing that gives you your rights, then the state is a tool that needs to be nested as deeply into your lives as possible. So it can grant you as many rights as possible through the social contract of you agreeing to give up certain things like the right to kill somebody or the right to steal somebody's food or something like that, right? We, we recognize that those are bad. We give those up in order to have more legal protections in that. The opposite though, for the English tradition, that we already have this set of pre-existing rights means that government's only function is to fulfill securement of those rights, right? And therefore more imposition and more meddling is bad because that's just getting in the way adding panes of glass in your mirror, in your house of mirrors between you and the rights that you have. Mm. Now, I, I bring that up to emphasize that whether any religion has anything correct, if we can even frame it that way, spiritually, we do have plenty of evidence that when peoples don't have something quote unquote supernatural in that position, we elevate something natural to that position. And more often than not, when that's happened historically, it's been terrible.
I think, let's see. I think that goes back to like the one thing that a cult needs and can't function without is their charismatic leader who is engaging, who knows people's names, who um, is able to connect with people on some level. And cult is a sort of, it's a bad term, but um, you know, we've said maybe not all cults are bad. And if religions and cults function the same way, um, or at least start the same way, a charismatic leader starts gaining followers. Um, and that person has something, you gain something from that person. And I think more often than not, that charismatic leader kind of falls off the deep end and things go wrong. Um, but yeah. you know, however many religions there are, five or six or 10 that are very, very popular, the charismatic leaders got the ball to the finish line. They died a good person. And therefore that religion continued on versus it's literally you live long enough to see, see yourself become the villain. So, you know, if Jesus hadn't been crucified and had continued living, then Christianity would be, would be completely different because different things would have happened. But because he died when he did, it took off. Um, it's the same thing with, um, you know, all of those leaders, they died at the right time and the religion was able to carry on. And in the examples where it goes poorly, the one charismatic leader, maybe it's a group, maybe it's two or three, maybe it's a couple, they start to uh, cause harm and it goes terribly. And most of the time, I think that's what happens. But every once in a while, it's that perfect timing and it, they do have to die. <laughs> that is the only way for it to really uh, take off and go well. I think because at that point, they can't make any mistakes. They can't manipulate people the wrong way. And, um, and then it's off to the races. Which well, we that got... might be a bit reductionist, but that's kind of how it starts. Yeah, we're, we've got a little less than 10 minutes left, and there's a lot I want to say on this. So I'm going to try and, and very quickly separate the wheat from the chaff and offer a little bit of pushback and then see where we can go. We might have to do this in two parts because this, this conversation is going really well. Um, does well first of all just a quick note um i think my idea of taking undefined and therefore by definition infinite conscious experience and distilling it down into a specific time and place even metaphorically through story still applies whether Christ was a real person or he never actually existed and he's just a religious fabrication. Right. The, his, his place in the story and the function his story serves is still the same regardless. Now, we could have gotten that product out of as a result of recognizing cultural evolution 
So I'm not making a claim either way, just recognizing that. I think that point might still stand. Secondly, um, this is something interesting to play with. Do you think that that cult of personality leader, the ones that we now look back and call prophets, are so because they were able to recognize more successful patterns of behavior, even if it's strictly intuitive, right? A person doesn't have to be able to explain how they're good at something to intuitively know how to do it. So if you could recognize, hey, if I do behavior A, B, and C, I get this predictable result, and that's a net positive. If I inhabit behaviors D, E, and F, and I get this predictable result, and that's a net negative, then how about we all just practice A, B, and C, and it'll be better for everybody? Maybe, I... maybe by definition, that's what being charismatic is. Yeah, I was about to say, I think they have to, there's two parts. Um, they have the idea of what's going to work well. Um, giving to charity makes you feel good. And you tell others, giving to charity makes you feel good. This is something that you should do. Um, so you have that thought. And then you also know how to get the information across in a way that people will like the information and like you because of what you have to say and how you say it. And um, yeah, so you have to know what to preach and then know how to preach it. And that is a very special skill, um, which I think it is learned. I mean, it, it, it can be, right? That's, that's why um, that's why figures like Dr. Martin Luther King were so influential. Because in seminary, right, they, they went through preacher schools, whatever the technical term for that is. Um, and that's part of that, is learning how to be a motivational orator. But also, too, there is something about that that's not learned. Or it's, I guess it's learned, but can't necessarily be taught, Right. We all know somebody that can walk into a room not... and read it right away. Right. And they can tell you yeah, what they're I would looking say it's, for. It's not fake. Yeah. Whatever it, they're it, doing is not fake. It's not deliberate. A lot of it, it is genuine. A lot of it might be power natural. of suggestion. Right. So you take someone like Joseph Stalin that might have had been charismatic because he could intuitively read a room and knew what to say to what people, but was nefarious in his in his intent and derailed the whole thing um right using that power of suggestion i mean that's that's where a lot of those psychic shows are like that that's what's what their fundamental operating system is is power of suggestion right you throw a couple jabs out and you see who bites and you read the room really well and then you throw a couple more jabs out that are a little narrower and you see which one of those bites and you just follow that breadcrumb trail all the way down um But again, like... I think to... No, go, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that being charismatic is not 
going to start a religion, you do have to have some sort of ethos or what you're preaching and telling people does have to connect. Um, it, so there is something there that the content I would say is more important than the particular people skills. Um, Delivery is important, but substance is equally important. Once that person, yeah, because once that person has died and the religion takes off, that the substance is what actually takes yeah. off. But what got it started was a person who was very charismatic and uh, was able to get that substance across in a way that people really liked. And, and that's really interesting. And we'll have to revisit this subject um, because of two things. First of all, like Jordan Peterson suggest, and I think he might be right on this, um, people have an intuitive understanding of depth. Meaning like with stories, with narratives, with experience, right? It's one thing to wake up and see the sunrise through your window because you have to get up and go to work and you're in a foul mood because you're trudging to work and you're tired and you don't want to. It's another thing entirely to go camping and make the specific hike to the top of the mountain to catch the sunrise at just the right time and how much more euphoric that experience is. There's so much more depth to that experience than the first one. When you read a story or you read a book, the ones that catch you are the ones that have depth. You can relate. You can tell when something's cliche or cheesy because it doesn't have that depth. It's surface level there, right? And I, I think that that's what makes religion successful or not is or any stories organize any organizing principle successful or not is whether it accommodates for that depth and then by definition that depth is the religious territory right it is the axiomatic foundational assumption of the world that all of your other assumptions are based off of that allow you to operate in the world effectively on any given day the second thing is towards the end when you were talking there that substance thing wouldn't that be truth by definition? Right. And, and I think this might be where we want to pick up later as to define what we mean by truth, right? Because there is scientific truth and that might be different from metaphysical truth, but that substance that is repeatable with predictable results, to some degree, there's something true there. Yeah, I think next time talking about the substance, I think we talked about the the leader um, and they're only step one of a thousand steps that has turned into the big, you know, five, six or 10 religions that we have today. Um, so I'm gonna do some research. Yeah, me too, I'm excited. Okay, um, well, well, we'll figure out if we want to take this straight into a part two or just do a revisit later.